Welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy. This is episode 30 and the final episode of this season. Woo, we made it to the end, y'all. Made it to the end of season one. What started off as a little idea has blossomed into more than I would ever have thought possible. I don't know why I'm getting so sentimental, but we made it to episode 30, y'all. So let's get this episode going. In today's HPI, aka Healthy People Information, I'm going to be talking about Inner Voice. Can I get a drum roll, please? I got you, bro. The COVID-19 booster recommendations. There has been so much going on recently regarding the COVID-19 booster. You get a shot. No, you don't get a shot. Well, you maybe can get a shot. Well, maybe you can get a shot, but only if your favorite color is blue. It's kind of been all over the place the last couple of weeks. Unfortunately, the information lately for booster vaccines has been in constant flux. So I wanted to wait a little bit until the dust settled down so I can provide you the most accurate information for you healthy people out there. So we're going to get into these recommendations that the CDC has recently put out. We have a lot to unpack, so let's dive into it. Can I hold my nose? No, inner voice. Be an adult. Don't hold your nose while we dive into this information. Just hold your breath. Be an adult. Don't hold your nose while we jump into this. Okay. I'm going to hold my nose anyway. All right, all right, so let's get into these recommendations regarding the Pfizer booster vaccine. So the CDC breaks these recommendations up into four different categories. So we'll start off with recommendation number one. People 65 years and older and residents in long-term care settings should receive a booster shot of Pfizer vaccine at least six months after the Pfizer primary series so you got to listen to the words that i'm saying because i'm going to be saying should in some parts and may so once again people 65 and older and residents in long-term care settings should receive a booster vaccine six months after they receive the primary series if you remember the primary series is two doses for the pfizer vaccine people 50 to 64 years old with underlying medical conditions should receive a booster vaccine six months after the Pfizer primary series. So once again, individuals 50 to 64 with underlying medical conditions should receive a booster vaccination. So who are these individuals with underlying medical conditions? So it's a laundry list of people. So I'm just gonna kind of go down the list what's on the CDC website. So these are individuals with cancer, chronic kidney disease, chronic lung disease, including individuals with COPD, asthma, interstitial lung disease, cystic fibrosis, and pulmonary hypertension. And just to touch on asthma, it has to be moderate to severe asthma for you to be in this category. So if your asthma is really under control and you don't really have severe symptoms, you are not in the category according to the CDC of underlying medical condition. This is only for people who have asthma with moderate to severe symptoms. So if you use your inhaler 
like once a year and you have asthma, you're not in this high risk category according to the CDC. Let's keep it going. So people who have dementia, diabetes, type one or type two, if you don't know which one you may have, you should know, but if you know somebody with diabetes and don't know what kind they have, if it's type one or type two, go listen to my podcast, one of the other episodes. I talked about that, the difference between the two. Individuals with Down syndrome are in this high risk category. Individuals with heart conditions such as heart failure, coronary artery disease, and high blood pressure, they're in the high risk category. Individuals that are infected with HIV infection are also in this category. Immunocompromised individuals, so people who have a weak immune system, liver disease, so these are people who have chronic liver disease such as alcohol-related liver disease, non-alcohol fatty liver disease, and especially cirrhosis of the liver, which is scarring of the liver can make you severely ill from COVID-19. Overweight and obese individuals are in the high risk categories. So if your BMI is greater than 25, your BMI is your body mass index, you are in this category of individuals who have underlying medical conditions that may be at high risk. Pregnant individuals and women who have delivered babies in the last 42 days are more likely to be severely ill from COVID-19. Still got some more people to go. Stick with me, y'all. Sickle cell patients or beta thalassemia patients, people who also smoke, solid organ or blood stem cell transplant people. If you just had a stroke or cerebrovascular disease, substance use disorder, if you're using drugs, cocaine, opioids, you're at high risk. Drugs are bad, stop using drugs. And that's it as far as those individuals that they listed as far as adults on the CDC website. So that was a mouthful right there. So those are all the individuals with underlying medical condition who should get a vaccine if they're between the age of 50 to 64. Now, here's where it kind of switches up a little bit. So if you're between the age of 18 to 49, and if you have one of those conditions that I just listed, according to the CDC, you may receive a booster. Yeah, it's not a should, it's a may. So take that for what it's worth. And lastly, this is category four. People between the ages of 18 to 64 who are at increased risk for COVID-19 exposure and transmission because of their occupation or institutional setting may receive a booster shot six months after getting the first primary series. So just like the people that I talked about earlier, they're also six months. I forgot to say that in there, but they are also in the May category. And that's between 18 to 49. So it's kind of tricky with these different categories, this should and this may. It's kind of hard to think of an example with this should and may. So this is the simplest thing that I can kind of think of. You should wear your seatbelt when you're driving around town, you're on the highway, no matter what. But when you're driving in a Walmart parking lot, I mean, you may can wear it. I mean, you probably should, but you may can wear it. I mean, it, it, it's a thin line wearing the seatbelt, kind of just driving around the Walmart parking lot. So that's kind of the simplest thing that I can kind of compare this to. 
but take it for what it's worth but i hope this information kind of helps you make a decision if you should or shouldn't get the pfizer booster so that's it for the booster recommendations so let's get into the episode with dr brooke williams Dr. Brooke Williams is a board-certified internal medicine physician practicing in North Carolina. She attended North Carolina State University for undergrad, Hampton University where she got her master's degree, and Campbell University of Osteopathic Medicine in North Carolina where she attended medical school. She completed her residency training in the south suburbs of Chicago, and during her residency training, she co-founded a nonprofit with her colleague Desiree Leach called Color of Medicine. Through Color of Medicine, Dr. Williams strives to increase underrepresented minorities in both medicine and STEM. She is an avid advocate for increasing cultural competency and reducing racial health disparities within the minority community. In this episode, we'll talk about what inspired her to become a physician, the difference between MD and DO doctor. If you haven't paid attention to what type of doctor you have, you can sometimes look on whatever white coat they may be wearing or scrubs and you may see one doctor may say md at the end of their name and the other doctor may have do at the end of their name so what's the difference so dr williams she'll break it down and tell us the difference we'll also talk about how it was being a minority during her medical training and finally discuss her nonprofit organization color of medicine if you have children, this program will definitely be beneficial for them. So make sure you pay attention to that part and look up her organization on her website. So let's get into the interview with Dr. Brooke Williams. All right. So what's up, everybody? We're back for another great episode of On Call with Dr. Randy. I have my good friend with me today, Dr. Brooke Williams. She has on her bonnet. Um, she's chilled and relaxed, <laughs> <laughs> ready to knock out this interview. So don't be surprised if you don't see a video portion of this interview. But we're still going to have a good time on this interview. So welcome, Dr. Williams, to the podcast. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Hines. I guess I usually call you Dr. Randy, but uh, let's be formal, I guess, Dr. Hines. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm so excited that you have, you know, made this leap into the podcast world, and I definitely believe that the world is a better place for your podcast, and uh, that you know you're gonna be able to, <laughs> oh, you're gonna be able to, you know, be uh, give people a lot of important information, whether that be people who are part of the medical field or not medical field. So I think you're gonna be able to touch a lot of people with doing this. So um, hats off to you and pursuing this. Thank you. Thank you. I'm supposed to butter you up. Isn't that supposed to be vice versa? But I appreciate the information. Appreciate it. So Dr. Brooke Williams is an internal medicine physician. She's also one of the, we'll say, the founders of the Color of Medicine, which is a nonprofit organization that we'll talk about a little bit later. So what made you pursue a career in medicine? So my story is kind of like uh, one of those aha moments, per se. Uh, my aunt, unfortunately, uh, passed away, uh, died from sickle cell anemia um, when I was in eighth grade. And up until that point, because she was uh, unable to work, I she was essentially like my professional babysitter. I was always with her. Mm-hmm. Even if she had a sickle cell crisis, you know, whoever would pick me up would drop me off at the hospital. I was constantly around doctors, constantly in and out the hospital with her. And 
just as, you know, I saw how impactful her positions were on her, on, you know, the family. It's a lot of social aspect. It's not just medicine uh, influence that they had. I said that, you know, I want to have that type of relationship with someone through my career. Positions, you know, it's hard work, but we have an opportunity and it's once, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to be able to have an impact on someone's life and be able to see a snapshot of their life and then to actually give you that trust. Uh, you know, we kind of uphold to the same level as, you know, a, a religious leader, which, you know, is not the best feeling, but needless to mm-hmm. say, people will tell you their deepest, darkest secrets. People, things they won't tell their spouses, their mothers, their fathers, you know, their siblings, they, you know, trust you and you have to really take that seriously and be very humbled by that opportunity. So again, she passed away when I was in eighth grade grade and I promised her literally on her deathbed that I would go into medicine. Not necessarily, you know, hematology oncology, because now, you know, fast forward, but just some type of medicine and go into the medical field. So that was it. Like from that moment moving forward, I pretty much bowed myself to going into medicine. Okay. And you went to uh, DL school, correct? Yes, yes. I went to Campbell University, Jerry Wallace, I guess, School of Osteopathic Medicine now is what the name is. And I was part, actually the first class, class 2017. So um, I had a great opportunity to be trailblazers, is what they called us. To be part of a first class is very special. Make a lot of, you know, impact on the classes coming behind you. And it was, again, a once in a lifetime opportunity. Okay. So for those uneducated and don't know what's the difference between the MD and DO, kind of share what's the difference that you that you know personally yeah. about going to DO school. Yeah. So kind of like what Dr. Hines just alluded to, um, in the past, what would we say, like month, month and a half, there's been some things in the media that have kind of been a little dividing waters, I guess mm-hmm. is the lightest term I could say, between um, fellow allopathic, um, which is MD, versus osteopathic, which is DO physicians. And there's been some people come out here that blatantly kind of explicitly say, what is the difference? And one is we go to two different medical schools. They are both four-year degree-seeking programs. But with osteopathic schools, you have an additional addition, excuse me, 500 plus hours of uh, manipulative medicine, OMT. So essentially, and I hate, hate, hate putting, trying to describe it this way, but it's a mixture between chiropractic and physical therapy with diagnostic and treatment that relate to diseases that traditional, I guess, Western medicine is used to treat. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So it can be Sometimes it can be an alternative treatment if things are not working or an adjunct to current, you know, traditional medicine. Mm -hmm. But it's just another tool in our back pocket. Mm -hmm. Aside from that specific training, we are also taught um, and is kind of ingrained as a hand-on approach, holistic approach to patient care. I will not say that allopathic physicians do not have a hands-on or, you know, holistic approach. But osteopathic physicians, our training is emphasized on that specifically. Like that is one of the 
pillars of osteopathic medicine. When um, AT still, you know, founded osteopathic medicine, that was one of the core factors. So again, those are big differences. Similarities now, since there's one um, accreditation system, which is ACG and me uh, for our residency programs, we all have to complete the same standards of residency, uh, depending on what specialty that is, no matter if you're osteopathic or allopathic. We all can go into um, internal medicine. We all can go into surgery. We can all go into plastic surgery. We can all do radiology. We can all do OB-GYN. We can all do ophthalmology. There's no field in medicine that is limited specifically straight to allopathic or osteopathic physicians. There are still two different board certifications mm-hmm. uh, once you complete your training. I personally did the ABIM, which is uh, abbreviated for the Allopathic Internal Medicine Boards. I chose that because my uh, residency program really uh, focused in on that throughout the three years that I trained and prepared us for that specific exam. So on my exam, I did not have the osteopathic manipulative portion on there that the osteopathic internal medicine boards would have had. Um, I was, again, you know, I know there's been some kind of mudding of osteopathic training and kind Mm -hmm. of, I wouldn't say witchcraft, but, you know, I set for the ABIM and I passed and I didn't have any difficulty passing. So just because your training may look a little different doesn't make you any less qualified. Um, And a lot of times you see osteopathic physicians and don't even know it. You just see some Mm -hmm. abbreviations on a code. You don't, you're not sitting there looking like, Oh, is that MD or DO? Mm -hmm. You could be seeing a DO for years and not have known it. So yeah, that was a very long answer, (laughs) but. (laughs) So is there any examples that you can think of offhand differently as far as um, the way Western, well, MDs versus DOs treating certain conditions like lower back pain, um, what type of manipulative techniques that you may do in the office that someone like me may not be trained on to help relieve pain? Yeah, so um, I think back pain, uh, Dr. Hines, you can correct me or not. Is it like the number one outpatient complaint that people oh, come yeah. in? I know oh, it's high yeah. up there. I'm complaining of like- it right now. My <laughs> Some statistical data, I think it really does say that like back pain is like number one, number two, something like that um, complaint. So with back pain, usually being like musculoskeletal in origin, hope it's not neurological because that's, you know, an emergent thing. Mm-hmm. We were taught in our training with the OMT portion that we can do different maneuvers, techniques, as you can say, by first evaluating the patient, which uh, first thing that is, is literally we can watch somebody as they walk into the office. Mm-hmm. I am a hospitalist, which means I just do inpatient medicine. And disclaimer, OMT usually is not that heavily used. I don't do OMT right now practicing really as a hospitalist. I can, but right now the acuity of patients I'm seeing is not really warranted. But anywho, someone could come into office or come into the hospital. I can watch them as they walk in or get them up to walk. And I can just look at their gait. Gait for non-professional or non-medical people, basically that just means how you walk, how your footing is, how your body position is, if you're, you know, slouched over, all of that. Yeah, we low-key um, stalking we, you as soon as you walk in the building. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, making any adjustments or reference because then you won't be doing your natural state. After that, then comes on the hands-on approach where we will go along your spine, checking for any curvatures, any asymmetry, which means unequalness. I guess, is, that, is that a real word? Unequal <laughs> imbalance <laughs> of different sizes or sides, tissue texture changes. So that basically means like if your muscle, one side of your back muscles feels a little bit tighter or if it feels warmer or there's more hair on one side, literally everything that we can see that may be off from one side to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, pain is a big thing too. If I'm feeling an area and you're saying, ouch, then obviously you're having some type of pain there. I need to be focusing my treat treatment, not just on the, the area that has pain, but of course not to kind of just glaze over it to make sure that it is included. Sometimes it could be referred pain, which basically means that you're having pain in the area due to some another, another um, area. So after we have done all of that, done assessment, um, gait, like evaluating came in, touching you with the hands-on approach, then we go through and talk to you about different treatment modalities. One of the biggest things that people know us for, and I, probably more so a uh, chiropractor is when you hear people say, oh, crack my neck, crack my neck, um, that, or crack my back. That, that is, the correct term is HBLA, and it's like a high velocity uh, technique that literally get down to the specific vertebrae, literally right down to it, and you're able to actually open up that vertebrae, depending on if it's, this is getting really technical, but you know, rotated or uh, flexed or extended. People, I guess, usually know those terms in reference to the rest of the the body's alignment. And that can be causing a lot of um, discomfort. Uh, So that's one of the biggest things that people love and I feel like kind of get addicted to. Some people will not allow you to do it no matter what, because there are, of course, some dangers to that, which Mm -hmm. include like severing the vertebral artery, you know. (laughs) But you want to make sure you go to (laughs) <laughs> going to someone who is comfortable with doing it, well-trained, and this is not the first time them doing it is on you. Okay. Um, but most people, you know, licensed physicians aren't that, you know, they're not going to be doing that. They they want to make sure they feel comfortable. And even during our training as medical students, some students would not allow them to allow that to be, be performed on them. And I mean, that was their, you know, their right. So everyone has a different comfort level, but um I will say again with the back pain, that is something that is probably a very common um, technique. We also have like a counter counter strain, which, you know, we can literally hold a, perhaps someone hold a um, specific um, position with their bodies. And basically it's kind of uh, one of my professors explained it. Like if you had a pin cap, a clicky pin cap, and you were pressing it down and you after you held it down, it kind of popped back up. You know, you have to do like the double click. And essentially after holding a specific tender point, after you've held it in that position of where it wants to go when you've maneuvered it, that tender point actually will completely dissolve. It, it will go completely away. And you hold that for a certain amount of seconds. And then after that, you release it and the tender point is gone. And this stuff really does where you can, but you have to be really cued in on the the tissue texture changes because you can feel it literally it's described as like tissue melting underneath your skin underneath your your fingertips but if you don't do this every day i mean these are again i said at least 500 hours of additional training in medical school mm-hmm. on top of continue that in residency so if you stop just like anything else 
muscle memory, you're not going to, I, right now, I would not probably be able to easily palpate that. I could probably do it easier than someone who's never done it, but you have to continuously do that. So and I'll come to you for my back pain right now. I need to. Go <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so as you progressed along from North Carolina State University to oh, you did your uh, research. Mm-hmm, we're doing research okay. over here. We got okay. your master's okay. over there from Hampton. Okay. We professional okay. around here. Okay, you know, evidence-based medicine. All uh-huh. right, do your research. Yep, yep. <laughs> and then you went all the way to Campbell. What um, examples have you seen as far as uh, what examples did you have? as far as minority representation during your training from undergrad all the way to DO school? Let's see. So I'm going to use some abbreviations here. So went to North Carolina State, which is termed PWI, predominantly white institution. And I guess taking a step back, my high school was mixed half and half. It wasn't, you know, one specific race versus another. So went to NC State, a public institution, the greatest institution in the entire world, go pack. Um, (laughs) And then after that, I uh, applied to medical school, did not get in, decided, okay, well, I don't want to go work. I need to figure out what I want to do. I decided to go to Hampton to get my master's because I felt like that would help leverage and you know, mm-hmm. kind of buff up my resume, make me more valued per se right. uh, to medical programs. And um, so lo and behold, I ended up at Hampton, go Pirates. Um, and Hampton is a HBCU, which means historically black university mm-hmm. um, and college. Oh, I want to say that backwards, sorry. Uh, historically black college and university, sorry. But essentially that means predominantly black student body uh, for anyone listening. So that was a really big transition for me. My parents are products of HBCU. So before applying to undergrad, they they saw my personality. I don't know if it's good or bad. They were like, mm, don't know how much you that experience would gel with your personality going, you know, in undergrad. So mm-hmm. honestly, I didn't even apply to an HBCU in undergrad. I wish I would have because I feel like the experience is, you know, again, once in a lifetime, I keep using that that phrase, but, you know, something that I kind of envy people who mm-hmm. have had the undergraduate experience. But I was able to do it in uh, grad school. Are they and afraid you wouldn't fit in or something? I think, I, I mean, okay. Did you go to HBCU? Yeah. I didn't do my homework. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you know how the the whole, the like, you know, the financial aid portion uh-huh. and like things uh-huh. kind of sometimes not moving as quickly as even technologically. I think the way my mind is programmed and I'm like, oh, what about this new thing? And that, and my experience at Hampton is kind of like, well, why fix something that's not broken? That would be the nicest way I can kind of put it, mentality. So when a new idea was introduced, it wasn't really taken as like, oh, okay, that's cool. It was like, well, we already got our message here. We ain't changing. <laughs> so that was, you know, something different for me. And things don't happen on your own time, which I needed to learn. I needed to learn things don't move when Brooke says, you know, they need to move. And I definitely learned a lot of patience and just, uh, you know, things can definitely go bad, but you won't, you won't die. You know, you'll figure a way out of it or figure a way with it. I will say going to HBCU does give you opportunities, which I kind of feel, I don't know, I'm on the fence about give you opportunities as being a black student at an HBCU that you may not have 
as a black student at a PWI. I don't mm-hmm. think that is necessarily fair at all, mm-hmm. but it does give you, I won't say it doesn't give you the opportunity. So I'm very grateful for that. Met some of my best friends that from uh, who went to Hampton with me and I did a summer enrichment program at MED, put on through UNC School of Medicine, and that's specifically a recruitment tool also uh, for minority students. So definitely had a lot of minority exposure and not being kind of a majority exposure is being a minority coming from NC State. But then after completing my master's, I went back to Campbell, which I became another minority and a majority. I was waves. Yes, ways. I was one out of three out of 165, I believe, or 164. Mm. So, yeah, we were just a couple of specs. I mean, I wouldn't even say pepper because pepper comes out a lot heavier than that out the shaker. But (laughs) yeah, yeah. just a couple of dots. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that was, you know, a different experience. Again, coming straight from being a majority to now really going to the extreme and being a minority. There were some things that, of course, is being a trailblazer that I definitely brought to their attention as recruitment tools. And I don't even think to this day we necessarily have a chair of diversity and inclusion, but someone acting in that role. Because one, being a new medical school in a state that has some strong medical schools already, who whose big or main objective is to recruit minorities, we had to kind of step up to the table to do that. And it's important. As you know, we see racial disparities. A lot of that is because we don't have minorities in medicine. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it it stems from a lot of different areas, but it's important. And so I definitely made my, con- raised my concerns to Campbell, but I still, you know, I, I did perfectly fine in there. Met some of my best friends who were not black, um, who didn't treat me anything less. Uh, my professors never did. I never really felt isolated per se. Then mm-hmm. coming from there, yeah, I went to Chicago. So we already know Chicago's population is majority Black. I was in the south suburbs of Chicago. You know, a lot of house staff is Black. I definitely saw a lot more Black physicians. It still wasn't the majority, but again, you know, you're in a city where professionals, a lot of minority professionals are housed in. So that was great, you know, to really see, you know, one of my attendings who was a neurologist who had her MD and PhD and she was boss, mm. black female trained at top universities and you couldn't tell her nothing. And I, I, I was like, Oh my God, like maybe I should have done neurology, but it was too <laughs> late at that point. But, um, you know, that was a really good, I think, experience. And to think someone who's in their training, having that type of influence on them. And you know, I think that actually, you know what, that was, the beginning of my third year, because I hated neurology as a medical student, and uh, I decided to like, oh no, I'm gonna wait to this till the end. And I literally felt like that as a third year resident, like I was, you know, seeing like the Beyonce of, you know, the hospital. Like I was just like, oh my god, I I want to be like that. Mm-hmm. And it, it really that having, yeah, like having that having that that moment is being someone even that far in her career, but you know, I'm almost done. Think about how people see us, you know, 10, 12, 13 year old girls and boys of color who's like, dang, like, oh my God, I can do that too. Mm -hmm. And so that really, really made an impact on me and was like, people, when they really are looking up to you, like you really don't, they can just watch you and you can have that type of impact. You don't have to say anything, but for them to see that is so impactful. 
Right, right. When you were growing up, did you see anybody of color that you looked to as that you, as a physician that you were like, okay, if that person can get it done, I can get it done too? I would say more so, I guess, my dad um, worked at one of our local hospitals here in Winston-Salem. And he, my dad is a retired fire captain and now he does security. So at the hospital, he did security. But he was my, one of my biggest advocates and any doctor he ran into, he said, you need to meet my daughter. So mm-hmm. he always pushed and it, it wasn't based off of race or anything, he, any doctor. Mm-hmm. But I did get to establish some uh, mentor-mentee relationships with um, African-American physicians at that point. But it wasn't necessarily like patient care, like, oh, they were my doctor, you know. So, and it was weird because I think at that point, I really didn't look at it like, oh, I need to, I already knew, you know, like I said, at Acre, I was going to be a physician no matter what. So I didn't, that finding that person who looked like me wasn't as, I, I didn't need that. That My drive came from something deeper. Well, not, I'm sorry, not deeper, but from something different, I should say. So yes and no, I guess to say. Okay. So when you went to NC State, do you feel like they did a good job trying to find someone who could, well, how did they reach out to minorities basically to get them to pursue a career in medicine? Like, did they bring black doctors around y'all or that was non-existent? You had to get it on your own. Yeah. At that point, again, I had already kind of started to create. My dad taught me how to really network and I had already started to build my network, honestly, in high school. And by the time I got to NC State, I joined the pre-med club, which honestly was kind of like a secret society. Like the <laughs> the, the um, professor who ran it, she was an MD and like she made it seem like we were part of uh, Mean Girls. Like we had to be part of the, um, what's it, the group called Mean Girls? Oh, I'm blanking on it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, like just like if you were Those part of that, girls. like mm-hmm. yes. And so honestly, like they didn't really have to recruit because the way they made it seem like to be part of the pre-med club mm-hmm. was like they were doing you a favor mm-hmm. to be part, like for you to be part of it. So it was kind of like, yeah, one of those things people sought after. Of course, Did you, I have you a know, burn book too. <laughs> you would think so, because if you weren't on uh that person's good side, then supposedly, you know, she had connections to all different types of medical schools and it could jeopardize you ever getting into medical school, supposedly. <laughs> but, you know, I can go by rumor. She loved me, by the way. So I guess I didn't really worry about that. But um, yeah, that was one. That was something there. So So as you've gone along in your training, have you learned that it's important to have minorities represented? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, again, taking it back to when I was a third year resident and just seeing someone who's not even in my field. um, Some people may not know. Neurology is its own residency, its own specialty. It doesn't come off internal medicine. So Mm -hmm. even though I had to rotate through it, um, that was something important to me as a soon-to-be provider looking at my soon-to-be colleague. And I was just so wow. Like, that was a wow factor for me. So like I said, like, if that can affect me, God knows how it affects. Like, when, you know, my patients tell me all the time, especially an older Black patient who has been through the civil rights movement, who's seen, you know, the worst of the worst. And when they say, I'm so happy that you're here, it really, sometimes it brings tears to my eyes because I know exactly what they're talking about. And it, it's a sense of pride and like sense of belonging. And like, you want to do good for them because 
how much they have sacrificed, you know, whether big or small, you know, they were, they've lived through an era that we will never understand, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, we're suffering through racial inju- and uh, injustice now, but, you know, I still feel like that was probably a little worse if, if I was to say, I mean, I, again, I wasn't there, work. but huh? <laughs> a lot of worse. Yeah. So, you know, for someone to say that means a lot. And I feel like I'm I'm doing something that in their wildest dreams, they would have never imagined they would have ever seen. Right. Right. Uh, that's, when I walk in the room, sometimes they'll express how happy they're to see me in the position that I'm in and how far that we've come along. And sometimes they're in shock. I didn't think you was going to be black. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> there are black I know. going on. I know. Right. I um, know. I don't think other races, when they go in the room, that the other their race is like happy that they're oh, you're white, man. I'm so happy. Right. You've come a long way. Like, right. Right. Hmm. You gotta. You got a point there. Yeah. I mean, and that's something that we have to continue to strive to change that narrative. We have to. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to be, you know, it may not be in our generation, but I hope before the rapture <laughs> continues um, that, uh, you know, that we are able to change that trajectory and change that 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 idea. Right. And part of your uh, organization is helping to change that directory. The Color of Medicine, your nonprofit organization mm-hmm. that you started with three mm-hmm. other lovely Black women. Give a little yes. more information on the program. Yeah, so um, anyone who's listening to this, Susan, feel free to go to our website. It's colorofmedicine.com. No the, but just colorofmedicine.com. Um, and we, the idea was brought to me by Dr. Desiree Leach. She's one of my best friends, uh, currently lives in Chicago. Um, and she had a passion for, like a lot of us, uh, minorities um, in medicine or STEM, wanting to help increase more minorities in these fields. And she said, would you want to start a nonprofit with me? I was like, sure. <laughs> and this was in the middle of residency. Uh, one of the craziest but most humbling experiences that I've ever done um, to start a nonprofit and actually, you know, fill out all the paperwork and had no idea where to start. It was just her and I. I felt like I was a lawyer doing, you know, going to law school, <laughs> trying to read stuff on Google, mm-hmm. see what these terms mean, I mean, filling out this paperwork, sending stuff to the IRS, back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, I'm and legit. That yeah, like, you know, we wanted to come correct. That was one of our biggest things before we announced our establishment. And so, see, November of 2018, by June of 2019, we had established that 501c3. And I was very proud of that. We worked very, very hard um, with the help, of course, of, you know, our some people on our advisory team. And we founded Color Medicine. Um, and our principles are like many other nonprofits of similar nature, help increase minorities in medicine and STEM. Our thoughts were that there are tons of nonprofits that have the same main goal in mind. But as uh, statistics have shown that there has been no true increase of representation of underrepresented minorities in these fields. Mm-hmm. So what what missing ingredient are we all missing? There, It has to be something because it's so many of us that exist, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to find that missing ingredient. Um, we started working with 
CPS, which is Chicago Public School System, is the third largest public school system in the nation. And going in classrooms, having what we call table talk series. Um, mm-hmm. Our most recent project is actually we're going to have live lab simulations where we have three classrooms that we have partnered with. And Northwestern has graciously partnered with us as a partner um, in getting financial donations. Also, from thank you for any of uh, my followers or people following Color Medicine who gave this past week specifically for uh, Giving Tuesday, was last Tuesday. And throughout this entire week, we had a popcorn um, fundraiser. Mm-hmm. Uh, we raised over $7,000. It was outstanding. So that money can go to things like the lab simulations where we'll, you know, be able to do labs with elementary, middle school aged kids, um, hopefully getting up to high school, but we need to make sure we can, you know, handle the simple lab simulations first. Um, being able to provide scholarships, being able to provide career development, just different things, you know, money, you have to have some type of funds to be able to run a nonprofit at the very basis. So we are very grateful and just, you know, humbled that people actually believe in our idea and can see our vision the way that we see it. Um, And we're excited to, you know, continue to move forward in 2021. All right. So uh, just to go back and uh, talk about something you touched on earlier, what was the Table Talk series? So the Table Talk series essentially is (laughs) us literally either going to sit at a table, but sometimes we were standing up and just telling our stories, Mm -hmm. like I'm doing now and giving students an opportunity to ask us anything. Mm -hmm. Like it was like raw talk at its finest. No, no role play or no um, roles or no uh, any script. That's where I'm looking for. Okay. Sorry. You know, this was literally coming from, hey, I'm Brooke. I reason why I went into medicine is X, Y, and Z. These are my failures. These are things I have accomplished. Mm-hmm. What can I answer for you? What do you need help with? What are your, you know, your fears? What is holding you back? Like literally raw talk, like if I was talking to, you know, one of my closest friends. And it's so crazy how the students would literally just open up mm. and, you know, just some innocent things like, you know, people asking like, oh, is it like Grey's Anatomy at work? <laughs> um, and I have to unfortunately tell them, no, sorry. I, I wish it was like Grey's Anatomy too. I'm a big Grey's Anatomy fan, but no, unfortunately it's not. You know, what is it like when someone dies? You know, just answering real life questions that, you know, I probably wouldn't ask when I was their age, but I think it's important. And if people have a curiosity, that's what you want. You want people to always ask questions. Questions mean you have a curiosity, showing interest in something. So that's essentially what the Table Talks uh, series has been about. Okay. What age group do y'all usually go talk to those kids around? Is it um, middle school, elementary, high school? High school? Mm-hmm. More so. I've done some personal, like, panels like I've been asked to be part I think it was uh, Michigan University's School of Osteopathic Medicine I believe that's what it was I've done something there um, I've done some panel discussion this is more so on like diversity in the workplace uh, for physicians with Bryant University um, I've done some things with Campbell obviously representing myself but also uh, color medicine is a branch of me um, so again, just sharing my story on all the panels. Okay. And what special touch are you putting on the organization? Are you, are you the fundraising person <clears throat> organizing all the trips to the school? How, did, how is Brooke leaving her mark on the organization? Uh, so 
I, myself and Desiree kind of catch-all type role. Um, usually, if Desiree can't do it, I'll try to do it as far as like trying to initiate certain things that we know need to get done. But that does not take away the you know the roles of the um, other two board members. Um, we recently actually just got uh, a new advisory member. Uh, Dr. Kim Middleton, she's been mm-hmm. fantastic on top of our other advisory members. And so that has been phenomenal. They, these ladies have stepped up, you know, we were all in training when we first started and I'm the only one who I literally just finished training. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we all were trying to juggle things on our plates, you know, last thing, you know, we want to come do when we get home after you spent 12 hours in a hospital, 12, 13 hours or working a night shift. Is to do more work, but we all made sure that you know things got done, and these ladies again stepped up when no one asked them to, and just they've been phenomenal. And uh, we couldn't be where we are today without them. So you know, essentially, we're all a a catch catch all type role. Mm -hmm. We um, going to twenty twenty one a year though. We are going to start kind of assigning more specific roles. Um, people have actually reached out to us um, as far as joining Color Medicine as a general member. So we will have that on our website. So uh, stay tuned if anyone's interested. So we can delegate out more tasks and kind of be able to extend more out to um, the students who need us. Because uh, we're only, you know, one person is only 24 hours in the day. So we definitely need more help, um, which is exciting because that means we're we're starting to be in the motion of doing a lot more. So, yeah. So as, as y'all kind of progressed along and started with with the children, have y'all noticed it's more girls interested in STEM than boys or vice versa? Uh, you know, I have not, I can't say. Um, I haven't noticed anything blaringly like, oh, there's only, you know, one boy in this group of uh, 10 other students or mm-hmm. vice versa, but I'm sure like, you know, if we sat down and did a poll, we might be able to see, but I think that also varies from classroom to classroom or geographic location um, and things of that nature. So yeah. I definitely think, you know, it would be interesting. We do need to, We I had actually started an IRB process with my uh, hospital when I was a resident, which um, hopefully I can try to continue by having one of the, the current um, attendings who are on staff there kind of join our project so that we can continue to look at some of that data because it's important. That's how you get grants. That's how you, you know, create the evidence-based medicine and showing what you're doing is actually working and why you need to do it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the reason I just made me kind of think about that question is just going to back to things that you kind of talked about, um, especially with your medical school class and not having that many minorities in your medical school class. Same thing with me in my class. I can name all the black people who are in my class and it, it wasn't that many of us. A class of like 160 people approximately. And I doubt that we had double digits in the amount of black representation in my class. And I know the class after me, they didn't have any black males in the entire class. And I'm just trying to think of different things offhand that we can basically encourage uh, young individuals to pursue, especially like black males to pursue a career in medicine. I'm just trying to wondering what's what's hindering them thinking about doing medicine. Is it just 
not having opportunities to see other individuals that look like them, being exposed to different things, not getting things when they go into high school, showing them different options that they can do um, to pursue a career in medicine. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually had a um, very good conversation um, with a physician, Dr. Uh, McCade. He's actually the head of diversity inclusion of ACGME today. Very, very great conversation. And some key points that he did bring up is that if you look at, and this is the people who are applying to medical school or people who are taking the MCAT that there is a large percent of people who actually sit for the MCAT and don't even apply for medical school. Mm. And I was like, really? And if you think about it, I, I will be transparent. I did not score well on the MCAT at all. I got to get three times. I took it. And, you know, people, the, he also made a mention to, you know, the guidance um, that minority students probably particularly have or don't have people will discourage you they'll be like there's no way that you can get in with this score there's no way and just hearing that if you don't see someone who looks like you if you have never had a mentor that can kind of counteract that statement don't have a physician in your in your um family why would you apply why, why would you, you know, there's the guidance counselors are supposed to be guiding you, right? You know, mm-hmm. they're supposed to be somewhat the experts in knowing who's appropriate for, you know, this job or that field or X, Y, and Z. So yeah, that makes sense. Like why, you know, but that should not, that should not be the end of their story. There are so many people who are wanting to go into medicine, but don't even apply. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, the, the conversation was even more farther extended than that, but that was something that really hit home with me because I was like, you mean someone's going to, you know how much money it costs to even apply, like apply to sit to take MCAT? You're taking it multiple times. And mm-hmm. if you're fortunate enough, you might be able to get on, get in on one of the $1,500, whatever thousands of dollar Kaplan courses or whatever test prep they have now to sit. And, you know, not do well the first time. Maybe you're, you, how you were, taught to process or weren't taught to process questions and critical thinking and all of that coming up because again you didn't have that infrastructure you know you weren't told like oh this is how they have this is how they're going to structure these questions already having a tip in that some of our other colleagues might have had to do well and you're sitting up here struggling and seeming like oh that you don't know because you're not as smart as them no Mm -hmm. it's because you weren't equipped with the necessary tools that other people had. You don't see you don't see that other hand that they get were given that opportunity, you know? So it's not that you're not capable of doing it. It's that you weren't given the right tools. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, th- there's a lot that we can do. And again, essentially, hopefully color medicine will be able to help change that trajectory. You know, obviously we're only one organization, but as everything we've seen go on this year, COVID and certain populations that it affects more so. And again, racial disparities, and there's an array of reasons as to why it it has affected certain populations of people, but we need more minorities in medicine, point blank, period. Mm -hmm. Definitely so. More minorities in medicine, engineering, mathematics, overall, all the STEM programs, we need more representation. 
I think we just have to, um, of course, educate children on the process into getting into certain programs and that it's not easy, but then also letting them know that it can be done. Yes. Seeing somebody who looks like you and sounds like you can give you hope that um, you can you can pursue those dreams and actually reach them, reach them and complete them. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. I remember um, medical school, we they'd have pictures of the classes all the way to like the 1800s in my medical school. And I would just look at those pictures and go all the way back and be like, okay, if um, Reginald Jefferson, class <laughs> 1967, the one black dude in the class, if he, if Reggie can make it, I can make it. I can make it. Yeah. Sure enough. If Cleophus Smith, class of 69, with his <laughs> afro, if he can make it with all that stuff that was going on back in 69, he didn't have nobody to vent to and all of that stuff. Right. Cleophus can make it, I can make People it. People probably tearing out pages of textbooks and God knows, like, yes. you know. Yes, I thought I had it hard, but Cleophus was in the library. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> I Google stuff, man. Right, right. Cleophus probably no couldn't in the library either. He had to stay on the black right. Mm-hmm. Right. And they probably had the oldest edition available for them and not even have the newest edition. <laughs> like, man, I'm missing the encyclopedia book on the black side. Right. Who told right. you to read, boy? Right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, back to the color of mid. So for you personally, what mark do you hope the organization leaves on the world? That's a really good question. Uh, giving out scholarships, um, increasing numbers of, of uh, money into STEM. I, I want a little bit more depth than that. I, mm-hmm. I want that. I mean, I don't want to be like Nike, just do it. But, uh, you know, essentially, and this is very simple, but you can do it too. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want, no matter if they, a student decides, you know what, this is just not for me. And that's fine. Like, we're not forcing this on anyone. We want people who are interested or even create some type of interest or curiosity in something one maybe they've never exposed to, something that they never thought that they would be able to be capable of. But whatever they leave from one of our, you know, mentees lasting impact of if I wanted to do it, I know I could. Mm -hmm. And if I want to do it, I know I can and I know I will. I think just going into that with that type of attitude with anything you do in life, being able to like instill that in someone and create that confidence, I think is is more than what we can ask for because you you need that. And you know we're one one phone phone call away, but unfortunately we can't hold your hand when you're sitting to take that MCAT or you're sitting to take that GRE or GMAT or sitting for that interview for, you know, that medical school, or when you're sitting to take the USMLE, um, or giving your dissertation. But if you remember that feeling or what we instilled in you and knowing that without a doubt, you can do this. If God places in you, you can do it. And just keep, you know, keep on pushing, keep on persevering, then we've done our job. That's a great answer right there. God leads you. He will (laughs) misdirect you. Amen. Amen. All right. 
All right. So we got Dr. Brooke Williams back for Randy's Random Questions. You ready to go? Yes, I hope so. (laughs) All right. So they won't be too crazy. So you lived in Chicago for how many years? Three. Three years, three glorious years. Three glorious years. Where's the best place in Chicago to go and get pizza? I have a lot of lists really in Illinois, and I know I have some people in Chicago. So where's the best place? Do you have a particular spot? Aurelio's. I love Aurelio's. And it's not, disclaimer is not, they do have Chicago-style pizza, but I love their sauce. Their sauce for me and their cheese, like, that's what does it for me. Okay. So it's actually thin crusts the kind that I like. But if we're talking about Chicago-style pizza, mm-hmm. I hate jumping on the bandwagon, but Giordano's is one of my favorite places. That is like one of the monopolies of Chicago, like with Gino's and Luminati's. So, but I I have a preference for Aurelio's and then for doing Chicago style deep dish Giordano's. So what makes Aurelio's so special about their sauce and their cheese? Man, I don't know. It is just like one of those things like you start like craving, like fiending for it. It is like, (laughs) they, it is, it's not too sweet and it's not too salty. It's like, I don't know, the perfect combination. And then the cheese kind of has like a little tang to it. It's like, I don't, it, it is bomb. You just got to try it. Okay. You just got to try it. And why did I won't lead you with... down the wrong path. All right. I appreciate it. Why'd you say it with so much hesitation about the place you can go for the deep dish pizza? It's like, like ah, I'm going to just. Oh, that's just because that's what everyone. I mean, I wouldn't consider myself a tourist anymore. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when people think of Chicago uh, deep dish pizza or like when they come, they're like, oh, I need to go to Giordano's or I need to go to Luminati's because that's what they everyone hears. That's what I heard when I first came or Gino's. Like those are like the kind of commercial, you know, things that people know off that. I'm sure there's some great mom and pop places there. Um, I had like a list of food places and different pizza places too. And of course, Instagram, I have you gaining 10 pounds by looking at all these food pages. Oh yeah. So search the wrong hashtag or the wrong foodie person. It will lead you down a spiraling path 20 pounds later. COVID-15. They have me screenshotting places that I know I'm not going to go to. Like, man, just in case I end up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Right. Make sure I go to this this donut shop 30 miles outside the city. Right, right. All right. So next question. So you're working in the ER right now, correct? I am. I am. I'm admitting patients down in the ER. All right. So here's the scenario. You're in the ER. They call you to admit your celebrity crush. Who is your celebrity crush? Who is your crush when you walk in that room that you're going to just start smiling and get <laughs> the best care that they've ever had? You're going to run. We talk about male or female? Whatever choice, male, your male celebrity crush, and then you can name your female celebrity crush as well, too, if you want to. Okay. So everyone who knows me, Female, without a doubt, Beyonce. Everyone knows I'm ride or die. I'm head of Beehive, okay? Okay. <laughs> All right. So, male, right now, like, right, right now, what's today's date? December 6th? Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to go with Michael B. Jordan. Yeah. I'm going to just have to go with him right now. Right now, that is Bay. You know, like... No questions. Besides like, him being GQ man of the year. Why is let he, me tell you. Why is he right you know, now? I just, 
I think um, his his persona, like just how he carries himself. I, I would not. I haven't seen him in enough films to say that he's like a young Denzel, but I, I feel like he carries himself very well. I have not seen him, at least unless you bring it to my light, really be any social or like uh, things that have shed a bad light on his character, his judgment of character. Mm-hmm. Um, unless, again, you kind of tell me otherwise. I haven't been. No, no, no. Good, right? I'm not going to say anything uh, <laughs> negative about him and lose some of my audience. <laughs> I know my black women in my audience, so... Uh, his smile. Oh, I just, I just feel like he, he, what he portrays. You know, I know you have to kind of turn it on when lights, camera, action. Hmm. But I, I do feel like a lot of that turn on is really who he is when he's hanging out with the homies. Mm-hmm. He seems like you know really down to earth and just like want to have a good time and live in the moment and just you know take you seriously. But then he doesn't at the same time. Like you know, let's. Life is too short, tight mentality. So mm. I don't know. That's just Bay right now. Okay. So you'd be And doing... if he's listening, I'm I am single. Like single single. <laughs> like phone is dry single. <laughs> Hello. So if uh, he was in the emergency room, you'd be doing some unnecessary manipulation when he was on Michael B. Jordan. We'll do that. I even do wound care. Okay. And listen, people already know. Me and wounds. <laughs> I wouldn't even call. I wouldn't even put no console in for wound care. I'd be doing the dressing changes. Fall back, nurse. Fall back. I got it. Oh, man. Like, why is Dr. Williams in there <laughs> writing orders for cocoa butter and applying it on the patient? Like, I don't <laughs> know what's going on in that room. <laughs> why is Beyonce the greatest? Oh, man. Where do I begin? Work ethic. Um, I have watched, I think, all of her documentaries. And she is a machine. She is a perfectionist. She literally puts everything into it. And just she and she wasn't an overnight sensation. You know, this is someone who's literally put in 20 years, maybe more into the game. Like as a young child, she she had she knew again, like when we say that God places something in you and you know it, she knew it. Like performing like five or six in having little um, pretend tickets selling it like at her show. Like she knew and her parents knew too, which, you know, is something important as far as increasing minorities in medicine sin, but that's mm-hmm. another different topic. But her parents believing in her. And I just think that, you know, she's a force to be reckoned with. Like mm-hmm. I, one of her songs, it talks about how she wants to leave the footprints on the sands of time and like, Basically, how she wants to leave this world and like the impact she wants to make, how people, you know, that's how we should be looking at life every day. If I was to die today, what impact, what will people remember me as? What, what, what I have done for the world to make it a better place? And aside from her talent and just giving us entertainment, I think from her global, her global impact. Yeah. And, you know, her wanting to do good for like the greater cause like and she's and she's open with it she it's not something that she kind of shies away from because she doesn't want to be politically incorrect or you know afraid of stepping on anyone's toes I admire people like that like you're going to stand up for what's right no matter who may you know shun you for this you don't care and I feel like that's who she is mm-hmm. all that and even more and she's a great yes. on top of all of that 
Yes. So speaking of dancing, who taught you all your dance moves? Listen, I knew you were going to ask that. Uh, <laughs> let's see. I used to actually cheer and I used to dance. I've been dancing since I was like four or five. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, you know, the traditional ballet, jazz, tap, um, all the way up through, I'm going to say like probably my freshman year in high school. Then I transitioned over to just doing strictly cheerleading. I cheered my first, second year at NC State. It was competition cheerleading. So I've always been in that arena, per se, dance cheer. And I don't know, I just I just like to have a good time. Like, you know, when we can't laugh at ourselves and what are we doing? So mm-hmm. it's just honestly a good way for me to have fun with my friends. Pretend like I'm Beyonce and Destiny's Child, okay? And then, yeah, just be in the moment you know life is already too serious it's already stressful enough and sometimes you just got to dance it out hashtag Grey's Anatomy (laughs) (laughs) all right if y'all go to her IG page she's she has some good dance moves on there she knows (laughs) all the latest dances all the TikTok video dances um, (laughs) IG reels all of that stuff yes you know what what about can we do a dance off like we should do one Who's we? Why am I? You and I, like, we'll do a TikTok challenge. Oh, God. Help me, Jesus. Whatever I got myself into. Yes. Who, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, we can't, we don't know who's going to be listening, but I think I can feel it that the audience will want to see this. Oh, man. It might be COVID you're feeling. Check your temperature. (laughs) I'm down. I will throw myself out there for the the, the ground. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, we have this, uh, and you better not cut out this footage so people can hear that you said that. Okay, you are on record. I'll have to talk to my producer, aka me. Uh huh. (laughs) Right. If he or she will edit this out. And so here's the last question What does black girl magic mean to you? When I go to the Color of Medicine website, I see a lot of black girl magic on the screen popping everywhere from your board members to your advisors. There's so much melanin on my screen, I had to kind of wipe it off (laughs) off my screen. So what does black girl magic mean to you? Black girl magic means resilience. Grace under fire. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Grace under fire. My grace under fire. I mean, just look at um, the historical or the history of being Black in America, but on top of that, being a Black female in America. The struggles that we have undergone, you know, generations after generations after generations. But as we saw in this election and even prior to this, how much impact and how much the world, not even this United States, the world needs us how much, you know, we can do um, if people let us. So I think that Black Girl Magic means being resilient. I think Black Girl Magic means grace under fire. Okay. I like that. I like that. So that's it for Randy's Random Questions. We're going to let you off the hot seat. Can a little more. So anything else you want to leave with the people, you can shout out all your Instagram handles, Twitter, <laughs> I can see you dancing online and yes, yes, yes. medicine. Yes, of course. Like uh, before color medicine um, website, colormedicine.com. My Instagram handle is colormedicine underscore TM. My personal Instagram page is Dr. Brooke Williams. Um, 
D-R-B-R-O-K-E, Williams with an F. Um, that is all of my, that's the same handle on Facebook as well. Follow my page, send me, um, same as my Gmail, actually. It's all the same. Um, if you ever have any questions, anyone looking for guidance and um, medicine or any questions you know that you may have for me, feel free to reach out to me uh, via one of those platforms. All right. Sounds good. If you have a child interested in one of the STEM programs and yes. you're looking for information, mentorship, scholarship opportunities, make sure you go to the Color of Medicine. They may not necessarily be in your city, but we're all connected in this world. And we, we can find you someone to get in contact. The world, especially the world of Black medicine, we're like two people away from knowing each other. Everybody knows right. everybody. We're mostly in the right. same Facebook chat group or some yeah. type of other group. And we can find somebody that can help uh, gauge your child's interests and expose them to the world of medicine, engineering, mathematics, science, all of the above. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for having me on this. It's been an amazing time. Um, I wish you the best. I know you're going to do great things with this. Yay. Go Dr. Randy. So (laughs) (laughs) thank you for sitting and talking with me, Dr. Brooke Williams. And we'll see you on another episode. All right. And that's it. Yay. Yay. Thank you, Dad, for also listening to my podcast randomly on YouTube. I don't know how you find those clips, but thank you for listening to it as well. I'm going to be putting more content on my YouTube page, so I want you all to look out for that in between this season and the next season. So if you follow my Instagram page, you'll start to see more video clips on there gradually coming out, and I'll be adding more of these other interviews that I did to my YouTube page so you can see some of the people that I interviewed and get a better feel of how it kind of went. Reach out to me if you'd like to be a sponsor or have a commercial in future episodes. The link is in my bio for how to get in contact with me. Get my comedic medical thriller book on Amazon or my website. Once again, it's called Appendicitis if you haven't gotten it already. You can download three chapters for free on my website if you just kind of want to see how it's laid out. But If you like the podcast, for sure, you'll love my book. Well, it's time for me to get out of here, y'all. Wait, 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 wait. You didn't thank me. (sighs) Thank you, Intervoice, for always providing ill-timed comic relief. You always came through with the right joke at the wrong time. You're welcome. If anybody got you, I got you. Well, because I am you, so that's why I always got you. If there's anything you've been right about this season, that's it. You've always got me, and I appreciate it. If you don't have yourself, nobody else will. So make sure you have yourself. Well, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. I'll see you all in 2022. And as always, say it with me. Stay healthy physically and mentally. Let's vibe out a little bit to the beat at the end, just like we did on the first episode. Hey, see y'all next year.